Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is available on demand. This is happening right now wherever you are. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. It's good to be with you as always, and I hope that you had a good Thanksgiving. I hope that you made it through the uh, process without losing your mind. Hopefully it was enjoyable. Hopefully if you traveled, the travel experience was relatively mild and uneventful. And hopefully, if there was tremendous conflict at your table, it was resolved through passive aggression and you emerged victorious. Uh, as for me, I had a good Thanksgiving. I was a little bit under the weather, and uh, actually, I still am. I was here in Southern California, thankfully. I didn't have to travel. My older sister and her husband and uh, their three girls were here in town, and uh, we went to Disneyland on Monday. So we did that. That was chaotic. It was crazy. We had to wait 45 minutes just to get into the park, or at least I did. So, uh, and we were there the day before Mitt Romney. I don't know if you saw that in the news, but Mitt Romney and his entire family also, <clears throat> excuse me, went to Disneyland and, uh, imagine that for, for just a moment, try to imagine yourself at Disneyland 
amid a massive crush of people and then imagine running into the entire Romney family, all five of the boys, the grandkids, everyone, all of them wearing pastel polo shirts marching towards you with Mickey Mouse. Can you feel that? Can you feel me? I'm a little under the weather, folks, and uh, it's been a weird sickness. It's just, uh, it's been pure fatigue and heaviness along with a very light chest cold, a, a light but vicious chest cold. Maybe the word that I should be using is subtle, a subtle but vicious chest cold. And what it feels like and what it has felt like for the past 48 hours, uh, it feels like all of the energy has been drained from my being, and it also feels like my body weight has doubled. So that's what Disneyland does to me. That's what the holidays in general do to me. You understand me? They rob me of my vital life force, and they make me want to surrender to the void. So, you know, I realize this might not be the ideal approach. I don't want to have a bad attitude. I can feel you judging me. I can feel you judging me silently. Uh, the thing is, I'm just not able to compute these things and to, to feel like I'm being honest with myself uh, and to come away with anything other than, uh, oh, God, make it stop. That's how I feel. <laughs> these people in the world who can smile and be excited about anything and clap rapidly and giggle, who love the holidays and who love to go shopping on Black Friday and endure that kind of retail chaos, I simply cannot do that. I cannot find a way to positivity on that front. I have yet to accomplish that. You know, I've tried. I don't want to be a bitter man. But this shit is awful. And it drains my soul. <laughs> uh, you know what I think about the holidays? I think they would be better if they were spontaneous. Instead of on some sort of set schedule. I wish they were. there was just like a bell... Or something, like some sort of siren went off at arbitrary times. And that was how you knew that it was the holidays. And then you just had to scramble and have a party. But, you know, you have these rituals and you have them at the same time every year. And you attach them to religion and all this other stuff. And you know that they're coming and the traveling and the stupid bullshit on the news about the food and the shopping. It makes me want to run as fast as I can to the bottom of the ocean. Do you hear me? It makes me want to sprint to the Earth's core. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. 
My guest today is Michael Cardos. Very pleased to have him here on the program. His story collection, One Last Good Time, won the Mississippi Institute of Arts and Letters Award for Fiction, and his debut novel, The Three-Day Affair, has been garnering great critical acclaim and is now available from Mysterious Press. You're going to enjoy this one, ladies and gentlemen. This right here is Michael Cardos, the author of The Three-Day Affair. Um, on the Mississippi State campus where I teach, and uh, I, I teach in the English department, which they've moved because they're knocking the building down from the inside. They're leaving the outside and spending a few years renovating it. So they've moved us to the periphery where we're way on the border of campus now in this sort of temporary building. And because we have no phones in our offices, because of budget cuts, we have one landline in the building that's in some sort of a closet and uh, which I'm in now, and there's no light in, in here, so I'm, I'm in darkness except for my laptop light. And there's an IBM typewriter in front of me, which is not plugged in. I don't know if it works or not. And um, there's and there's a landline, so I can I can talk. Jesus. So wait, they they've cut budgets so badly that they don't even have phones anymore. That that, that was actually a few years ago. And um, the funny thing was when they told us they were cutting our phones. Um, at first, we were all up in arms, and then they said, "Look, if you, if your particular situation is such that you absolutely must have a landline, let us know." And we all thought about it, and we're like, "Wait, this might actually be great," because the truth is, you know, we tend to be in our offices, you know, when we have appointments and meetings and things like that. And otherwise, it, email really is the best way to get in touch with me. So yanking the phones wasn't as draconian is actually sounded although for situations like this you know it'd be nice to have a phone yeah no that actually man plus everybody has cell phones and you know everybody has cell phones right if you can track me down that's the way i do it anyway and for students i'd rather them email me because i've got something you know that i can respond to so it's actually not so bad although it does sound kind of good right yeah they yank their phones yeah it's like as soon as you said that i was kind of sort of started to bristle you know like <laughs> damn it um so you're in starkville mississippi that's right what's that like well, let's see. Um, what, what we'd like to tell people is it's, it's better than it sounds. Um, it's actually – Starkville is a town of about 25,000 people, um, and it is uh, – and, and the school, the university has about about 20,000 students, so it's a decent-sized university. Um, it's a small college town, and it, I think it resembles a lot of small college towns, but it's, it's fairly small. Um, you know, you get to know people really fast. And, you know, I'm from, I'm from New Jersey, but I spent – some time at grad school at uh, University of Missouri, which is about 100,000 people, but it's still kind of a small town feel. I feel like that was kind of a getting used to small town, real small town existence. Where is that? In Col- is that in Columbia? Is that right? That's in Columbia, Missouri. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is actually a really great college town. Um, it was it was a pretty good place to be a grad student. But uh, yeah, Stark 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 feels good, and um, it's. I think the thing is. The hardest thing about it is getting in and out because there's a little tiny airport, but basically the nearest city is Memphis, which is a three-hour drive in one direction, or Birmingham, which is about two and a half hours in the other direction. So you're you're a little bit you know isolated. But New Orleans is four and a half hours away, and that's a pretty great stop. Yeah, no, I love New Orleans. My folks are uh, from Louisiana, so I have a, a special place in my heart for New Orleans. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about uh, like let's talk about how you got. To, to where you are like geographically because it seems like sort of an odd path for somebody from Jersey to go to Columbia, Missouri and then to wind up at, uh, at in Starkville. I mean, let's try to get, I guess, biographical first. You know, sure. First of all, well, where, where are you from originally? Yeah, I'm from New Jersey. I'm from a town called West Long Branch, which is on the shore. It's about 
10 miles north of Asbury Park. Uh, I was just going to say, like Bruce Springsteen country. It is totally Bruce Springsteen country. And I had, when I was 17, I had one run-in with him in a restaurant. It was fantastic. Well, wait, what, how old were you? 17? 17. And what happened? So this would have been like 1987. So it was a good year to be meeting him. Well, we were in a restaurant, my family. And, and Springsteen and Springsteen's wife and Max Weinberg and Max Weinberg's wife were having dinner, like at a table, about three tables away. And so I jumped up and I, I needed to get their autograph. And the only piece of paper we had was my mom's pay stub. And so uh, she gave that to me. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they were great. They signed the autograph. Actually, I went up to Max Weinberg. and I was like, dude, you're Max Weinberg. He's like, yeah. And I said, hey, <laughs> he, 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 I guess he liked that. And I said, uh, hey, you're Bruce Springsteen. He goes, nah, I'm just his guitarist. <laughs> they, they, they were very nice. And uh, yeah, so I'm from, from there. And then I, I went to college in, in New Jersey and stayed in New Jersey. I, I, was a, I played the drums after college for a bunch of years. And I was a music major as an undergrad. And I thought I was going to be playing the drums forever. And then, um, and then I realized that I wasn't. Uh, well, so so could, wait, let's, let's stop for a second. Because yeah. you, you went to Princeton in New yeah. Jersey. That's, a, that's a, a, a modest way of saying that is I went to college in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I went to Princeton, and, and their their um their music major there is performance is a is a theory and composition. So that's that's what I did. And so my my senior thesis there was a big orchestral piece. And but I was playing the drums and in, in bands and stuff too. And so were you in I, a band I, in high school? Oh, was I in band? Yeah. You were like in the marching like band? polyester uniform band. Yeah. Like band camp, yeah. like the whole thing. We, you know, it was a yeah, it was the whole thing. Yeah, so one like, of those things. Were you, were you on the snare? Like, was that what you were, like marching? Yeah, with the I snare? played the snare. I played the snare. I played the snare because I wasn't strong enough to hold the, the tri toms or the quad toms or whatever. I was like kind of skinny and little, so so I, and yeah, so I played the snare and yeah, I did that. Okay. And um, and then you got my parents still have a have a picture of it up on their. My parents have like. Going to their house is the um, the house of embarrassing moments on their walls, you know. Like, and that there's definitely a snare drum picture there. I might have to ask for one of those if I could get one when I make the, when, I, when, I, when I when I send your post live. We'll use that as your photo. Um, so let's talk about Princeton. Like I always ask people who went to like uh, really good schools on this show to to tell me about them because like I didn't go to like an elite college and I it's like a source of. Uh, you know, and, and my inferior my inferior inferiority complex, I think, is rooted in, in some way to this. But uh, like, what was it like at Princeton, and what like, what years were you there? Like, what was your general take on it? Okay, so I I was there from eighty eight to ninety two, and and um, which is the same. So I entered in the same class as Lyle Menendez, and in fact, you know, nice the guy, guy who shot us. <laughs> oh, he, he was actually in my dorm, although I didn't know him. Uh, but a friend of mine was in his freshman comp class. And so I asked my friend, you know, was he really crazy? Was he, you know, kind of normal? And my friend was like, no, he was completely crazy. I mean, if you were to point out which guy would shoot up his parents, it would be that guy. Oh, that's good. But, I, yeah, it would he was be, totally it would, nuts. It would be worse if he was like, no, we all thought he was cool. <laughs> but, <isn't> it, but, <laughs> but yeah, so he, um, he was there in my freshman class. And uh, let's see, I was a few years after Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields, I think, graduated in like 86 or something like that. But, um, you know, it's hard when people ask what it was like, it's hard to answer because that was my college experience. You know, you kind of only know your own. And so it was it was college. I had good friends there and I had some good classes and it was weird. I mean, it was definitely strange, but um, 
and there was, you know, I guess it, it was kind of, I don't know how to, it's, it's a hard question to answer if that makes sense. Like, you know, cause I only went, I only went to my college, but I would say that, um, you know, the novel actually gets into that, right? Because a lot, there was a lot of the flashback chapters take place there. And I wasn't trying to like, you know, you know, tar it. And I wasn't also trying to build it up. I was just trying to sort of explain that this was a college experience, you know, and there was a lot of privilege there and there, and certainly, you know, a lot of kids went to private school and, and there were people whose buildings had the same last name as they did and things like that. But for the (laughs) most part, you know, for the most part, it was where you went to classes and made friends and had parties and stuff like that. Um, but what yeah. about like what about like did you have any sense of like the history of the place like when you go to a school yeah, like I think that, so. that I, do they give you do they give you that like is that imparted to you in any way or is it something that you were aware of going in? I think it was something that I was aware of when I was there, and that you do get the sense that when you're you know studying in the library, it's a little like oh shit, like a lot of really smart people studied in this library. You know, there are a lot of like you know people who became. So I think you're aware of it, um, and you do kind of. I guess take that in, but, um, but, uh, actually what's funny is I, I thought I was going to be my freshman year. I like, I was sort of scoping out like an activity I could do. And I thought I might try to be a tour guide and I couldn't, well, I didn't take the time to memorize any of the facts. So I, my, uh, audition was to take a group of, you know, people, about 20 people around campus. And I was supposed to tell them everything about the campus. And I was just making it all up. Uh, you know, this building's about 130 years old, and, and this person, and this this president went. It was all wrong, but but you do get so, something of a sense of the history of the place, I guess, going there. And and there's a lot. There were a lot of legacies. There were a lot of you know second, third, fourth generations, you know, students there. And what about the ambition among like students? Like, do you like when you were going into it? Did you have a real sense of ambition? And I mean, obviously, if you went there, you had to have some. But I mean, do you, I mean, it feels to me like it would be a lot more competitive than like Boulder where I went. <laughs> I, I think, I think the thing about that, no, I think the thing about, uh, I want to ask you about Boulder in a minute, but, but I think the thing about that school and probably a lot of, uh, of the, of the schools like it, or that in a way it's a lot harder to get in than, than to stay in. You know, I think in a way it, it rewards kind of like maybe like high school achievement or sort of an, an unusual, application and that kind of thing. But, but once you're there, I, I remember that like my dad who went to Rutgers had this story. And I know a lot of people have that story of, you know, you're, you have like thousands of people in this gym and the Dean says, look left, look right. By the end of four years, you know, one of you, one of these people won't be there. This, and, and Princeton was not like that. You know, the idea was that once you made it in, they, they want you to stay in. So, you know, um, I think the people who were really ambitious worked really hard and the people who were not really ambitious for the most part got through it anyway, you know, but, but I didn't get, I, I didn't really get the sense that it was that competitive once you were there. What, where, where did you fall in, in, in terms of like your work ethic? Um, I did okay. You know, <laughs> I got, a, I, I, I did okay. I wasn't, at the, I think I, I think there were 1100 students. I think I graduated exactly in the middle, you know? Um, there were definitely some really smart people there, for sure. It was like, yeah, is anybody like particularly memorable? <sighs> yeah, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, um, there, there was. Well, what's funny is there, uh, there's a writer, um, David Troyer, 
who uh, has put out several novels. Um, he, he was also in my class, and he was a guy who was taking a lot of, he was an English major and taking a lot of creative writing classes while he was there. Um, and I, I didn't, because fiction writing was not on my radar when I was an undergrad, which is a shame because Tony Morrison was there and Joyce Carol Oates was there and Russell Banks was there. I mean, it was an unbelievable place to, to do creative writing, but I was doing music. And so, so David was in, he was taking a lot of music classes, you know, just for fun, basically. And so I just knew him as this sort of nice guy who was doing okay in his music classes. And, and then we graduate and a year later, he's got this novel came out with a Tony Morrison blurb. And I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he had all this going on and all that going on. You know? <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's like funny too when, I mean, I guess some people uh, take their college education seriously enough that they don't waste all the opportunities that are mm-hmm. sitting there in front of them, especially at a place like Princeton. But like, I look back, uh, I went to film school at Colorado as an undergrad and I, like, that was, uh, it's an avant-garde film school essentially and mm-hmm. Stan Brackage was there and he's like, the, he was like the king, you know, he was like the, um, mm-hmm. you know, the master of avant-garde film. You couldn't study with anybody better. Yeah. And he was just a major American artist, you know, in his field. And, uh, I look back on like the fact that I didn't take better advantage of that. Mm -hmm. I just want to kick myself. But don't you feel like, like if you're 18 or 19, it's just, you're just not aware of stuff like that. Oh no. You know, like, I mean, like in in a much, much, much smaller way. I mean, our students, they don't even know that we write, you know, like they, I think for the most part, they assume that we're their college teachers. They don't even make the connection that we're their teachers because we also do it. And so, so I just feel like there's, when I'm 18, 19, there's no way I'm aware of like the, all the opportunities and what they mean. And, you know, yeah, it's like a hindsight's 2020, 20, but like speaking of your own work and your teaching uh, work at, in, in Starkville, like, do you ever assign your own work just to like, <laughs> make sure they know no, or does that does no that i don't <laughs> there's plenty of really good things that i can assign so i don't um i you know i occasionally will let them you know it's not that i don't ever refer to my own experience as a as a writer because i think it's important for you know for students to realize that that we do also do the things that we teach but but i don't give them my work to read unless they actively seek it out on their own well but you know and see this is the thing i remember in film school like certain professors of mine like showing me their own films uh, mm-hmm. Not just me, but like all the students in the class, and there's there something sort of smacked of desperation. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I felt like as a student, I remember being like, "This is sort of lame." Like you know, he's got to like this is like the only place, and especially for avant-garde filmmakers. And I should give them a break because it's so hard to find it. I mean, you think it's hard to find an audience for fiction? Like goodness right. gracious! Like try making like a, a seven-minute silent, like hand-painted film about yeah. death. You know, right? <laughs> so they had right. they had very few uh, venues to show their work, but. Um, yeah. you know, I've taught creative writing as well. And like never in a million years would I consider uh, assigning my own novel. I just, I think that would feel weird. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe in a way, maybe the one place it could be useful is if you're talking about revision, cause you would actually have access to the material, but that hasn't really ever come up exactly. Um, you, I think you were asking a long time ago about getting to Mississippi. Um, so there's like New Jersey and then, oh, so, uh, I got so I was playing the drums for a long time, and um, yeah, tell me about what, that. Like what? Like you? Well, you wanted to be a rock drummer? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I was. I'm a good drummer. I'm not the best drummer, but I'm. Been, I've been. I started playing when I was nine, and I took it seriously. But there's a lot of good drummers, and there's a lot of good bands. And New York was a 
you know, again, hindsight, like if someone had told me, you know, what, if me, myself, looking back at 21-year-old me, I would have said, get the hell out of New York. You know, there's just, there's, there's too much there. There's too many bands there. They all play for 15 people night after night. And, but, but anyway, but I did it and I played a lot. And what I started realizing was that my friends who were a little older than I was who were playing, you know, they really started, you got to, if you're going to make even close to a living at it, you got to take every show that comes your way. And it seemed like, um, that was a really good recipe to start hating music. And I was, I was also writing fiction at the time on my own. And, you know, it was a nice sort of antidote to having, you know, when you play in a band, you need a sound man and other guys and rehearsal space and, and it costs money. And, and, and whereas for fiction, I could sit at home with my computer and just do it. And so I I liked, I liked doing that. Um, And, and started noticing that the backs of books would mention so-and-so got her MFA at school X. So-and-so got his MFA from school Y. And, and so I looked up what that was and it started becoming something I thought I might want to do. And ultimately it, it did a few things. I, I didn't go back to school till I was 30. Um, so it got me, it was a real change and it got me out of New Jersey for the first time. And just like a, sort of like hitting the reset button a little bit. Um, and I thought it would just be, you know, three years of obsessing and fiction writing. And then I go back to New Jersey and figure out what the next thing was. Um, and I'd been in Columbus. I got my MFA at Ohio State. And I'd been in Columbus for like an hour. And I was like, oh, yes, yeah, this is totally the right thing to do. And it just, it just totally felt great. Oh, really? Like you like immediately got to Ohio and were like, this is it? It, it was, in, yeah. I, there, in my incoming class was this other guy from New Jersey, and he had been a Marine. He was a couple of years older than me. I was 30, and he was 32. And I think we met and like the next day we got like we met everybody else and maybe had our first fiction workshop and then went to this bar at like four in the afternoon on a Thursday and had a, we're sitting there having a beer. We're just looking around and Jeff who's, you know, he's this ex Marine guy. He just starts giggling. <laughs> he's like, I can't believe that we're able to do this, you know? Uh, and it felt so great. And, and, um, it, and it was so great. It was, you know, it was, it was it was going back to school when you're actually old enough to appreciate how ridiculously fortunate it is to be able to do it. Well, yeah. And it's the only place I always say this because there's a lot of people, you know, there's always the back and forth about MFA programs of whether or not you can teach anybody to write and this, that, and the other. And I think there's validity to all these different points of view, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, where else are you going to hide out and write? Like, I mean, unless you want to live in like, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, backwater in the third world where you can live for like, you know, uh, peanuts per year. Yeah. There are fewer well, and fewer of those places. So it's like there, there's really no other options. Why does that argument come up like every three, every two or three years? Can you know, can that, what's the value of an MFA program? Can you really teach someone to write anyway? Like it seems like doesn't it seem like that just always circles back around like every couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I hear it, I think, especially because I'm doing this show and talking to writers and, you know, it just naturally comes up. But I just don't know, like, logistically how else you can find time to write unless you, like, either have uh, money uh, coming from Mm -hmm. somewhere or somebody supporting Mm -hmm. you or you're living in your parents' basement or you're living somewhere that's extremely cheap and you can afford to kind of, uh, you know, float. But, you know, where are those places? And, you know, you think about, like, the pre-MFA world, which wasn't that long ago, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, MFAs didn't really start to even come into being until, what, like, mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. And like prior to that, you had to go to like a post-war economy. <laughs> I mean, and truly, you know, like that's the way it worked. And you had to go there and, you know, and, and hang out. And, and fortunately, the post-war economies of like the first half of the 20th century were like in Europe. So 
Right. If you happen to know Gertrude Stein, you're in good shape. But you get your MFA there. But like those things just don't exist anymore. And so I think the MFA programs have sort of come in to fill that gap. Yeah. And that argument always drives me crazy, especially coming from the music side of things. Because I'm like, yeah, you know, imagine saying that of a piano player. A violinist, like, of course you can be taught, you know, I mean, yes, you got to have a little something, you know, to start with, but my gosh, like, you know, and, and I've seen so many musicians who were self-taught and, 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 but the truth is they all have had bad habits and had they all been taught, they'd be better. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I could say, and I don't even know if necessarily like innate talent is always really what uh, determines a person's success or failure. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I increasingly believe, I mean, I think talent obviously has to be there, but I, I increasingly believe that a lot of it is persistence. There's no question, right? I mean, there's no question, you know, having that will just to c- continue to sit there, to go through whatever you need to go through, whether it's rejections or mm-hmm. false starts or failed manuscripts or whatever it is. Like I repeatedly talk to people on this show and there's like, you know, there are common denominators, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the people who kind of make it through the gauntlet and get books published and go on to have yeah. some degree of publishing success. And I think central is always just the will to sit there and the will to find the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, when it comes to your own writing career and, you know, how it fit into this musical, uh, ambition that you had, like at what point did it start for you? Like when you were a young child, were you, I mean, I'm assuming you were bookish from a young age, but uh, how did it grow within you? And like, when did you first start to kind of nurse the ambition to actually write fiction? And then when did you actually start to sit down and do the work? Um, when I was about 12, I think, my family one summer decided to do this thing where we would each write a story once a week and then read them, you know, together once a week. And uh, there were four of us. In the first week, everybody did it. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if my dad made it to the first week. He might have dropped out <laughs> before the first week. Wait, whose uh, who's idea was it? I think I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. But uh, I think my my sister made it a couple of weeks, and my mom made it a couple of weeks, and I kept doing it. And uh, and so I lasted, I think, the whole summer. And you know, the stories were terrible. But but I but I, but I think what I did have then and continued to have was sort of bizarre perseverance. Um, for stuff, you know, for, for, for projects. And so, um, so I did that, and, but really, and I always liked writing. I did well in my English classes and I liked reading, but it was always secondary to the music. I mean, that was the thing that was always sort of my, sort of what I identified as and, and what I did, you know, throughout high school and throughout college and, and the writing and the, and you know, literary pursuits were really way, way, way secondary I only took a couple of English classes in college, and I liked them all, but I just didn't take a lot of them. So it really wasn't until my mid-20s that I started writing a lot more, and I tried to write a novel. Um, and it was a total failure, but you know, but I did it. I finished a couple of drafts of it. So. And how, and like how and when were you working? Like, you know what I'm saying? How did it fit into your life? Um, I was just doing it at crazy hours. I mean, you know, I was doing, I was living crazy hours anyway. So just when I had some time, you know, I would, I would just, you know work on it some more. Okay. Um, and, and, and I'm pretty methodical. So like, I, I didn't know any other writers. So I just checked out a billion books out of the library about writing fiction and, you know, tried to, or I took, you know, I was like, Oh, how do I write a first chapter? So I took out every book I had and like analyzed the first chapters, you know, like this is how first chapters work, you know, um, which doesn't really write your first chapter for you. But I think it was at the end of the day useful. <laughs> 
Well, no, but it's like it's also common sense. I mean, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like you have to read it. Like, it is one of the parts of the equation that I think for some reason is often either overlooked or not attended to and people just don't read. <laughs> they mm-hmm. want to like I mean, I went to graduate school with people who uh, called themselves writers and and professed to want to be writers and they didn't read. And not only that, they didn't write. And usually I think it's you know the two things are are interrelated and it's because you know, if you're not, if there's not input happening, if you're not feeding your head with good books on a regular basis, it's going to be hard to write any. I mean, it just seems so, so obvious, but it's easy <laughs> to let it slide, you know, and it's easy. It seems to be more common than, than it probably should be. Yeah, I, think, I, I agree with that totally. And I, and the one thing that I think I haven't found a way to do as a teacher, and I don't know if it's my place anyway, is to, is to motivate you to actually sit down at, like I taught, we talk about it, but you know, I can't make you write. You're either going to do it or not do it. And you're, you're, you're either going to do it. I, I can tell you what I do. I can tell you what people I know do, but that sort of motivation to do it is, it's like, it's like telling you to go to the gym or telling you to run every day. I mean, some people will do it and some people won't. And, and I think in a way what makes you do it is you feel so bad if you don't do it, that you just go ahead and do it. You know? Yeah. I mean, you're either, I think you're either a lifer or you're not. I really Mm -hmm. do. Like, I think you either have the bug or the gene or whatever it is. Um, because I think, I think if you have it, then you can try to not do it. And then Mm -hmm. when you still, and then when you realize that you can't stop, even though you're trying not, you know what I'm saying? Like, I I feel like it it will force itself upon you. And and once you've seen that happen and once you kind of come to terms with that, then you just know you're screwed. (laughs) Yeah. I make these analogies to my, to people about like, Oh, well, it's a lot like, you know, if you run every day and then you skip a day, it's so much harder to start again than if you keep doing it. And I guess I believe that, but I hate running. You know, it's it's really easy for me to stop, you know, but, <laughs> right. but and say, you know, same thing. If you, if you miss going to the gym for a week, how much harder it is to start again. And that's true, but I hate going to the gym, but, but, you know, but writing, I do, I, I do feel gross if I don't do it for a while. Yeah. Well, and then what about like, for, like, uh, your genetic, line like do you come from artists do you have any kind of like precedent in your family uh, um, history i you know i come from more uh readers my mom is a high school english she, she's retired now but she's a high school english teacher and she was she's still the most she's the most well-read person i know uh and that you know she'll in one hand she'll be reading a classic and the other hand she'll be reading a total genre thing and just you know it's either she, she you know henry james said there's only two kind of books right it's like good books and bad books and that's kind of her has always been her take on it, right? So, um, so I think you know my sister and I both grew up with that, you know, and, and read a lot. Um, but as far as artists, I don't really, you know, my my dad's a pediatrician, and we've got a long line of of those kinds of things, but uh, not fine arts or not artists exactly. And what about so, your sister? What did she wind up doing? She's a pediatrician as well. Oh, she is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, having come from music, I think I'm the only person in the history of the world who said, "Hey, mom, dad, I'm going. I'm going to be a writer now." And they're like, "Oh, good, something safe." <laughs> <laughs> right, as opposed to being like a rock drummer. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny too. Like when you were, we're talking about like this reading and your mother reading and how there's two kinds of books or whatever. Uh, with regard to your own reading habits, mm-hmm. do you find yourself the more that you, uh, you know, per, or continue in your career, do you find yourself having a harder time uh, locating books that are really, really great to you? Do you know what I'm saying? Because like I, I find myself so excited when I, I find mm-hmm. a book that totally gets me. Yeah, I, but, I think so. 
that's rare for you, right? Well, not. I mean, it just it just requires a little work. It's not like I can just pick up anything. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, yeah, I love nothing more than having a book that I can't wait to get back to. And yeah, you know, it's a matter of finding that fit and finding a book that really speaks to you at whatever moment you pick it up. Yeah, and, and I think so much of that too is I think like the books that really, really changed my way of thinking or changed my way of thinking about writing. A lot of those were in the years when I was starting to do it. And I think I was the most impressionable then and subject to just being like my world flipping over, you know, and, and I don't know if those now are my favorite books or if I read them for the first time now, if I'd have that same what reaction. Were, what were they? Give me a couple. I can tell you, they're all things I found just in a, in a, in a, in a used bookstore. They, they, I just sort of looked interesting. I know one was Nicholson Baker's novel, The Mezzanine, which is, you know, just a mess of footnotes and craziness and, you know, um, one was a, a novel by uh, William Kotzwinkel called The Fan Man. Do you know that novel? No. Uh-uh. Uh, this is – okay, so there, there was an excerpt of it in an Esquire anthology of fiction, um, but the novel itself, it's, it's called The Fan Man, and it, it's sort of like a, this cult book from – like it's a total hippie book. It's, it's hilarious. The main character's name is Horse Bedorty's. Uh, and I think the short story that was excerpted was called Horse Bedorty's Leaves His Apartment. And it's just, it's, it's just so funny and weird and, and great, you know. Um, and uh, just trying to think what, what other, I think uh, the novel Clockers, you know, um, was a great, just total wonderful, you know, book. It's a detective novel, but it's so good. The writing is so great, you know. Uh, and then, and, and then what, what about uh, you said earlier that you kind of took undertook like a methodical approach, at least in the beginning, to learning how to mm-hmm. do this and, and to mm-hmm. you know, taking this kind of autodidactic, um, you know, approach. Like, what were yeah. there? What were the book? Were there any instructional books that you read that really helped? Honestly, it's I, I don't even know if there was one. Although at that point, I feel like my knowledge of fiction writing was so rudimentary that everything was helpful. You know, um, you know. I didn't need grammar, but I needed, you know, even the most basic things about, about, um, you know, I don't know about almost about showing, not showing and not telling and painting pictures in the reader's mind. I mean, all those things, you know, I knew because I'd read a lot, but, but sort of looking at it like, Oh wow, those, yes, that's right. I can see that. I can, I can see how this is, this could have been summarized or this could have been done in exposition and it wouldn't have been as, as, as lively. Those things were pretty revolutionary to me when I had never been told them before. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, you just need to be reminded of the obvious stuff that you sort of mm-hmm. already know, but you know, like... yeah, absolutely. You know, and even though it's funny, like, you know, now that I'm 10 years out of, um, my MFA program or almost 10 years out of it, there's, I feel like there are still, I can picture those professors and, 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 and one or two things that each of them said that I still do kind of remember. And I still almost, you know, for a while, I, you know, when I was in school, I literally taped these things on my wall over my computer, but I still kind of have them floating around, you know, that can be very useful, you know, um, you know, and just as a, for instance, you know, I mean, it's hard to get more basic than like, you know, uh, like stories tend to be about the day that's different, right? So even slice of life stories are about the day that's different. You, know, you could have a character that every day of his life is this boring job in the cubicle, but the story takes place today is the job that's this different. And just bearing that in mind, when, I st- when you start to work on your story, you're like, oh shit, this is just a slice of freaking life story. And wait, it can't be. There's got to be something that is different, even if it's the last time he had a chance to change and didn't. You know, um, 
or there's always two stories going on in a story. There's the, there's the story that's literally happening, and then there's the story that the main character tells himself so that he can get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> and the way that this, and, and the friction between the thing that the character tells himself and the real story you know, that's actually happening in the world becomes the story that the reader reads. And I, I think those things are really smart and, and, you know, and they're, they're basic but sophisticated at the same time. Yeah. I mean, do you have any of that stuff like uh, on your writing desk or anything like that? Or is it all just in your brain? It's kind of in my brain. <laughs> You don't, even have like a, you don't have like stuff tacked to your wall or anything. No, I used to. Well, you know, we're in temporary offices right now, so I really don't want to tack anything to the wall. Yeah, of course. <laughs> they, they, well, actually, and they also uh, had to cut tax out of the budget. So. Yeah, we don't have any tax or tape so, or fun tax. Yeah. So we uh, just had to yeah. take chewing gum and just stick it up. Yeah, there. chewing gum or spit. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's try to trace, like in this very circuitous way, uh, your academic career because you went on to get your Ph.D., yeah. Uh, and I want to know why, and then I want to hear how you got from Ohio State to Missouri. Okay, so what happened was, um, like, I, like I said, I thought that my MFA experience would be three years of obsessing about fiction writing and then back to New Jersey for something. And then I started noticing around my second year that my professors had really, really great gigs. I mean, you know, they could write. They were in an environment that supported them some capacity, you know, or they were around other people who read and liked books and um, they got to teach students. I found, you know, I, I, I taught as part of being, a, you know, to get my stipend at Ohio State and I really liked that. And it just occurred to me that this is a fantastic existence. And so I wanted to, you know, decide that I wanted to do that. But I knew that after three years of graduate school, not having been an English major, I would not be ready to really teach undergrads for real, nor would anyone want to hire me for real. You know, I, I had a few, by the time I was leaving Ohio State, I had a few magazine publications, but not a ton, you know. And so, uh, so my reason for going on to the PhD was it would be, I, I didn't feel like I was cooked yet. You know, I, I, I'd only been, I, I, I wasn't sick of workshops. I wasn't sick of being in that environment. I wasn't sick of being a grad student. And I kind of looked forward to four more years of, doing that, you know, and also at the same time building up my CV so that in four years I could have that much more published and be, you know, be ready to be on, the, on a, what was even then an extremely competitive job market. So my wife, um, I, I met her at Ohio State. So we... In, in the program? You guys like... Yeah, I met her in the program place? the first day. Yeah. She's a, she's a poet. So um, she was doing her thing too. And okay, so we wait, decided... Wait, wait, wait. I got to stop you. Because you, <laughs> earlier, earlier you said... I was there, and like within the first day, I knew this is where I wanted to be. And you also happened to meet your future wife on the first. Yeah, day. yeah, I was. It was a really good day. Yeah, it sounds like it. The be, well, the best day, the best part of that was that when we met, her one of her first questions to me was, "Oh, did you come right out of college?" You know, it, it had actually been eight years, so this is clearly someone I had to marry. Right. right. <laughs> so, so she's a poet. Yeah. Okay, and so what class were you guys? Were you guys in a, a fiction workshop together? She did take the fiction workshops too, but you know it, it was a fairly small program, so we you know we got to be friends. For, we actually lived in the same apartment building, and um, we actually lived in the same apartment from day one. It was just yeah, really, really yeah, lived, yeah, the same building, and um, and I, I think the first time we our first it wasn't a date. You know, we were both dating other people, but our first time we had breakfast together, I I, I, I stiffed her out of five bucks, and um. It was kind of there was a little place to get breakfast, and, and she was dirt poor. I mean, she I had worked at least a little bit, but she didn't have any money. She came right out of undergrad, and 
we were having breakfast, and she figured out in her head, like, if she ordered this plate and this drink, she could get out of there for $5, including tip. I didn't know these calculations were going on in her head, but you know, this is apparently what she was doing. And so the meal came out to, like, $8 or $7. We realized we could leave 10 bucks, And I don't remember this, but apparently she put down a 10 and then we left, and I never gave her my 5 bucks. <laughs> And she didn't tell me this, you know, for a long time. And now she won't collect because she likes me owing her. Oh, right. Exactly. She's got you on the hook. <laughs> yeah. But um, so we uh, decided to apply to PhD programs. And we applied to a bunch of them, hoping we'd overlap. And, and, um, and we did. We overlapped at several. So that seemed like Missouri just seemed like the best fit. You know, she was looking for poetry. I was looking for fiction. They, they gave, we had reduced teaching load there. And so, and uh, it's, you know, we liked it. So we ended up going there. Wait, wait, like what other schools were you considering? Um, a bunch. We looked at, we looked at uh, Utah, uh, Cincinnati, uh, Nebraska, Georgia state. I mean, there's some really good programs and, and uh, a lot of it just came down to the, the package that we sort of collectively got. Right. So, so it you, was, uh, you wound up in Columbia. We went up in Columbia, Missouri. So, and they've got like a, a like a, a very good journalism school. They do, and a lot of our students were were from the journalism program. Either people who were still in it, or got sick of it and moved over to English. <laughs> okay, okay. So, but did you, like, did you have access to any of the fruits of that or whatever? Um, I don't think so exactly. I think they kind of ran their own show, but. Um... But it was it was a good place to be, uh, you know. I it was it was a very good town to be a grad student. It was still pretty it was pretty cheap. But they had a lot of good stuff. They had an art theater, and it was it was cool. Cool. And then all throughout this time, uh, you're teaching classes. You're mm -hmm. working on your dissertation. Is that what you do mm -hmm. when you get your? Yeah. And the thing about the creative writing PhD, which was interesting, was that on the one hand, you're doing all the things that literature PhD students are doing. So you're taking those classes and you have to pass the comprehensive exams and all that. But um, you're taking workshops at the same time. And the big difference is that your dissertation, rather than being a book length critical work, is a creative work with a critical introduction. So my dissertation was sort of an earlier draft of what became my first book. It was a story collection with, you know, a, 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 a critical component at the beginning. So what so, is this, what is this, I mean, uh, what is this critical introduction? Like, is it, you're talking like 25 pages of sort of like, yeah. the foundations of it or whatever? Is that what? It, it, it was, it was, a, it depended from committee to committee, but, and I ended up writing sort of a, what became a craft article about, um, you know, about openings and fiction actually, but, but, uh, you, you, you know, it depended. My, mine had something to do with my own work, but mainly it was, mainly it was a craft article. And so when you're working on uh, your fiction, whether it was back mm -hmm. then or whether it's now, uh, and do you look at it and find that there are things that you bring to the process from your musical background? You know what I'm saying? Can you notice ways yeah. that you approach creative writing that maybe somebody who doesn't have like a, you know, a long history as a drummer, uh, you know, might not do? Yeah, I think I do. And what I, here's what I, what I don't know is if that is cause and effect or if it's just that the same interests I have in music become the interests I have in fiction. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know if my, if my musical knowledge, you know, makes me write a certain way or if it's just that, you know, I'm drawn to those two things for, for some other third reason, you know. Um, but I will say that part of it is just material. Like I have a lot of good material for music that found its way into the fiction. But I think, more sort of compositionally, um, I think I 
do look at things in terms of structure in a, in a little bit of a musical way. I mean, music has, especially you know, sort of the classical component composing has such an element of form and, you know, the sonata form and, you know, with the motifs and the recur, there are sort of musical elements, I think, that find their way into, into my fiction, but I do think they also, those things also find their way into, into everyone's fiction, this idea of, you know, patterning and, you know, and repetition and thematic variation and all that. So, um, but I am interested in that, that both in music and in writing. Well, and then what about like the percussive nature of just typing? Does that mean do you get like really rhythmic? Is it like? Oh yeah, apparently I'm a mess. Apparently people can hear me all the way down the hall. For like, real? I can go. Yeah, yeah, I'm like the loudest typer anyone's ever heard. <laughs> it, that is definitely true. In fact, um, no, people really. Yeah, I have to kind of usually work with my door closed. <laughs> oh, you do. Okay, and so how do, and how do you work these days? Is it like whenever you can get to it, or do you have a regimen? Um, I. I well, these days um, we have a, a year and a half old, actually tw- 22 month old at home. So um, I feel like there's pre-child and post-child, and um, post-child it's it's a little bit more loose, you know. Yeah, no, uh, I have a two year old, so you're singing my song. It's like yeah, right. I mean, I think it's like it depends on day to day and week to week. And you know, pre-child I, I was really, really uh, regimented about the whole thing, and post-child. Um, um, we're getting there, you know, we're get we're getting it more work. And he's a lot easier than he was when he was, you know, six, eight months old. But, um, but those first six months are just sort of a blur. You know? I don't remember. Well, the funny thing is, Brad, I, um, so I, I wrote a textbook and it's coming out in, um, in December. What is it? Uh, it's like, it's a, like an intro, you know, intro level, college level fiction writing textbook. Okay. And, um, and, uh, I wrote most of it in the first six or eight months of his, of, or child's life, and I swear I don't remember writing parts of it. <laughs> like it's just such a blur. That's like Stephen King when he wrote Cujo. He was just blotto. He has no, no recollection of it at all. <laughs> yeah, I read his. It was on writing. you saying that he was so coked up for some of his novels. He just does has no recollection at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. No, I mean, that's impressive that you were able to produce a textbook during that period. No, well, in a way, of, it was. You know, it was the right thing to be working on because you don't have to keep a a long narrative in your head. You, know, you just kind of work on discrete parts of it. Right, 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 right. I mean, is that a good is that a good business to be in, like writing textbooks? I mean, is it something you're doing to supplement, or is it something you just really were passionate about doing? It, it's it's something that I had always. I think because that's how I initially started writing or learning to write. It's something that I had always kind of had in my head. You know, like how would I? What would my theoretical textbook be? You know, like who would I draw from? What would it be like? And then what? Ha- it was sort of coincidental. What happened was um, an editor at, at Bedford St. Martin's. Um, had contacted me about some stuff and um, not writing a book, but just some other things. And we ended up hanging out. And at the end of a lunch, he said, you know, um, do you ever think about doing a text, a textbook? Cause they didn't actually have a, an intro fiction textbook there. And, and, and I said, yeah, actually in some way I've been always thinking about this for like the last 12 years. And, and so I scribbled down some possible chapters on a napkin and she said, well, this, this looks really good, but I can't submit a napkin. So, we ended up putting together a proposal and it, so in a way it kind of just happened and it kind of evolved. Um, so it wasn't like I set out to do it exactly, but, um, it's, it's actually been kind of fun. And it, it, I feel like it came at the right time in, in a sense. Like it was a good time to be working on it. I'm it's like, I just sent back the final page proofs yesterday. So I'm really glad it's done. Um, What's it but called? it was, it's called the art and craft of fiction. Okay. Well, you know, but the thing is here, here's the thing about teaching. Like, cause it, you mm-hmm. know, uh, it's obviously there's obviously social benefits because you get to be around people as opposed to just mm-hmm. like you know like uh, perpetually yeah, tucked, tucked away in, in some sort of hovel 
So I think that there's a benefit to being in a community of other writers. There's a, a, mm-hmm. a nice give and take that happens in the classroom, you know, and so on and so forth. But, you know, what, what I always found teaching, whether, and, and not only teaching creative classes, but also just teaching like basic comp classes is that, you know, when you have to stand up there and teach it, um, you know, it forces you to, to really learn it, you know, and I yes. think writing a textbook would probably take that to the next level. It, absolutely. And, and that's totally the enjoyment of it was that um, I got to take the stories that I've been teaching for a bunch of years, like my favorite, favorite stories of all time that I like to teach and that I might have talked about 10 similar, but not exactly the same ways and sort of find the best way to say the thing that I've been saying, you know, um, and it, it, it's, it's that, aspect, that aspect of it was really fun. You know, I, I got to just talk about stories that I, that I like and talk about how, what we can gain from these stories. And one, one thing I, I, I always have done for myself, um, is that I'm very specific, like, you know, I will look at a specific technique from a story and figure out how I can try it. You know, that's just how I sort of learned to, it's probably how everyone learns to write, you know, but so the textbook, which was fun, was I got to look at these stories. Look at, okay, let's really do close readings of these stories and base the chapters on just those stories. And so that's kind of how it's put together, you know. So the anthology has 15 stories, and the chapters keep referring back again and again to those stories. So, so. what are some of the stories? Just a couple. Uh, Tobias Wolf's Bullet in the Brain, um, Karen Russell's story, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves. Uh, let's see. Percival Everett's story, An Appropriation of Cultures, uh, Tim O'Brien's story, On the Rainy River. It's probably the only book in the world not to use the things they carried. I was going to say, I was going to say. <laughs> but I always found that, man, in that collection, the things they carried is a perfectly fine story, but it's the set piece. It, it does, it's not a standalone story the way that some of the other ones are. And, uh, and On the Rainy River is just freaking awesome. And students, undergrads, love it, you know, so... It's a great story, so so I want to use that one. Are you going to use, now? Do you use that textbook in your classes then? Uh, you know, it hasn't come out yet. It's coming out in a couple of months, and so I did test drive it this past semester uh, to you know to kind of see how it went. And and it, I probably um, you know I probably will use it. But the weird here's the funny thing is that I got to figure out as a teacher is so the book is based on my teaching. But now the book exists. So what the heck do I say? <laughs> like, well, the, the best way of explaining this is already in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know what? It, that's actually better for your students because you know, all they if they get an echo when they go home to read the textbook or when yeah. they come to your lecture, like it doesn't hurt from a learning perspective. You know? Yeah, that's probably true. But that's kind of, that kind of funny conundrum I ran into this semester. Was well, wait. <laughs> It's yes. already there. I've given you my best stuff. This is, this is yeah. Now, now, <laughs> yeah. There's the best stuff. Now I'll just give you a puppet show. You know. <laughs> oh my gosh! So let's talk about uh, the three day affair. Like, sure. Give, give my listeners a little bit of background about how it came to be. What was the genesis of it? Sure. Um, how it came to be is 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 kind of interesting in that back we're going back to Ohio State again. But my first year in grad school, there was. Uh, a news story that I hooked into about a bus driver in D.C. who was driving a busload of kids. And because he had problems at home and all sorts of crises, he he uh, missed one of the kids' stops accidentally and then was so concerned about that that he kept driving and missed the next stop. And then he was so afraid what would happen, how much trouble he'd get in, that he missed the next stop. And before he knew it, he had hijacked his own bus. And 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 that just seemed like the most interesting, bizarre, cool news story I'd seen. So 
I stopped reading the article at that point because I knew I wanted to write the story about this bus driver. And I did. And that, and, and I wrote that story and that became the title story in my story collection in one, one last good time. Uh, and it was, it was a really interesting story to work on, but when I was done with it, I, I wasn't done with that idea yet. I thought that was so cool to have a guy who's not that he's a bad guy exactly, but that, um, you know, he's a guy who wants to think things through, but because he's driving a vehicle, he doesn't have time to think things through. And so that kind of became the genesis for the three day affair where, um, instead of a, you know, instead of a bus driver, you've got these Princeton educated guys who are getting together for their annual reunion, um, not the official reunion, their, their annual sort of hangout reunion of golf and poker and beer. And after doing this for nine years, one of the guys is acting kind of weird. And, uh, he asks to be, you know, to let off in a, and to buy some antacids at a well convenience store. And when he comes out again, he's, he's, sort of ushering the convenience store clerk into the car and he shoves her in and says drive and the narrator of the novel uh, named will who's driving the car um thinks that the girl is hurt or injured or sick and so he races off down the street and then only when he's a little bit farther down the road realizes that no she's not injured that his friend has just kid- robbed the store and kidnapped her and so- for various reasons they can't they can't stop Right. And so, okay. And so it just, it sounds like, I mean, and this is fascinating to me as well. It's this fascinating period, but like this thin line between like morality and immorality and, and mm-hmm. the way that like all human beings, I think, contain uh, good and evil impulses mm-hmm. and, you know, like just how quickly they can slide. Like that's just, it's, yeah. it's alarming. <laughs> that's exactly. And I think that's exactly what I was interested in. You, ha- you know, you can, you know, you can't educate the, the impulse out of people, you know? Well, yeah, and it's like the thing too is like the unpredictability of it. I mean, you talk about mm-hmm. this guy in this bus. I mean, who knew? You know, you know what I'm saying? I don't think he knew. And so, of course, that's right. Things can quickly like snowball. And so, I guess a natural question for me is like, you know, aside from your personal interest in like these this story and then and just the subject matter period, like, is there were there any autobiographical elements in your own life? Were you looking at your own morality and going, God, I could have? Or is there a fear involved? Or do you know what I'm I saying? Think the- yeah, I do know what you're saying, and I think the only the only thing that I could think of, and and this was something that was in my head a little bit. I was working. Is do you ever have this experience where you like you wake up from a dream, or you wake up in the morning with, and you like, or have a dream that you've done something horrible, but you, and you can't take it back? Like, have you ever had that? Is it just me? No, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. Last night I had a dream that I was texting with somebody, and it was so <laughs> vivid that I. Uh, I like woke up and checked my phone. You know what I'm saying? Like I thought, yeah, that, I yeah. thought that I actually had. Yeah. So anyway, so, so, but that, that, that sort of nightmare logic, right. Of like, you know, I've, I've done something, you know, I've done something bad and, and that's just how it's going to be, you know, it was kind of in my head as I was working on this, you know, this idea of, you know, they're not bad guys, but, but, they're ultimately the sort of self-preservation, you know, animal instinct is something that takes, it's hard to push that back forever, you know, given the right circumstances. Well, and it's a thriller, you know, I mean, you've, you've written a thriller, correct? I mean, is it, is that, a, is that a classification that you accept? I, I accept it. You know, I, I set out to write a novel novel and I was even afraid to call it that for a long time. I just kept referring it uh, as my long thing. You know, I didn't want to call it a novel because I was afraid of, you know, what would happen if it if finished it and nobody wanted it. But, um, you know, I didn't try to write it with a genre in mind, but, the fact that it is being put out as thriller, I think is great. I, I like thrillers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing too, I mean, cause it, this is a part of fiction writing, especially in the literary vein 
that I think often vexes people or you often, uh, you know, find that this element of literary fiction is often lacking. Uh, and that is plot mm-hmm. and actually, you know, putting together a plot structure that is, you know, really propulsive and really resolves itself and has real, uh, climax and excitement and an escalating sense of danger and all the things that good stories are supposed to have. So like, you know, re- regardless of your preconceptions of the, of the novel genre, uh, you know, when you sat down to write it, like, how are you perceiving the structure? I, I definitely worked on the structure. And in fact, that was something I worked a long time on before I started the writing. Um, even to say I plotted it out. I really didn't plot it out that detailed, but I did think about the structure. You know, it's, it's not, it's coincidence. It's not a coincidence. That it's the three day affair, not the four day affair. You know, <laughs> right. like yeah, I did see a beginning, middle, end. it takes place over a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, uh, more or less the chapters move from present to past to present to past, you know, um, between their days in college and the current kidnapping moment. And, and so I did a lot of sort of shaping of that. Um, and, and it wasn't a big outline or anything. I think I might've had like a two or three page outline that was more just things that I had to remember more, more so than a detailed outline. Uh, and in fact, as I was writing the book, I, I hit the end of my outline and I was only like 60% done with the novel. So, you know, a lot changed as I was writing, but, but I did think a lot about that sort of underlying structure so that at least when I, you know, you spend, you spend years working on a novel. I want to be sure that if nothing else, it it's sort of structurally held together. Oh, yeah. I'm obsessed with structure right now because like my mm-hmm. first, my first novel, Hey, you know, all books have structure, but like my mm-hmm. first novel was the kind of typical for literary fiction. In fact, that it, in the sense that it was loose mm-hmm. and, you know, I guess I sort of want to try to build a book that feels like it's airtight, you know, that it could float, you know what I'm saying from that? Yeah. Well, and the thing is like, you know, not every book can work that way, right? Like not every book can work with this sort of tight structure. Right. And, and sometimes some of my, and, and look, some of my the, the favorite books that I named earlier are really loose. I mean, they're not tightly structured, but, um, but, 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 this, yet they, but yet they hold together, you know, but they hold together. And, and, and I was thinking about like, you know, uh, Michael Chabon, uh, his, his first novel, um, the mysteries of Pittsburgh is, is definitely some sort of homage right to the great Gatsby. And I don't think it's a cool, I, again, like, I think he, I think he did that as much as an homage, I think he did it for structure. I think, you know, Gatsby is such a nicely structured novel. It's June, July, August, you know, and I, I think that, that I, so for a first novel, it strikes me as totally reasonable that you would structure it that way. And well, so even though that, even though Shavon's novel, it feels loose, it's really not that loose. Right. And, you know, something you were saying earlier, and again, this is one of those common sense things that uh, I already sort of knew, but it was good to hear is just the idea that, you know, when you're looking for structure in a story or a novel or whatever, especially in a long form work, uh, you know, just time, <laughs> you know, like a three day weekend or a day yeah. or uh, a summer or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know, like that's a great way to kind of like hang the various, um, parts of your mm-hmm. story, you know, along that framework. And it's just so obvious, but yet a lot of times when you sit there and you, you're trying to sort of conceive of this big beastly thing, it, you can mm-hmm. miss that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I think as, as a reader, and as a like you know, as a reader, you know really early on that come Monday there's a band in that recording studio, so the novel's got to be done. <laughs> and I think that same thing with from a writing perspective, come come Monday this novel's got to be done. So I, you know I've got these three days to deal with. Right. And so when you were writing it, um, and and just in your writing career in general, because you know like a lot of writers I speak with, and this sort of I think belies the the typical 
concept that we have of like the, the, you know, the, the writer who is, uh, flailing and struggling and, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, beleaguered, you know, you Mm -hmm. seem like you've had, once you got started with this, you seem like you've been pretty methodical and disciplined and you've made, you know, you've managed to kind of like take steps pushing the ball forward. But I'm curious to know, like not only with the writing of uh, your first collection or with the three day Mm -hmm. affair, but just in general, like how you have dealt with adversity along the way. And have there ever been really dark moments where you've been? Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, I I, I skipped over all the beleaguered parts, but there's lots of beleaguered, you know? Um, So let's get into it. (laughs) Like, like the novel I spent three years working on before grad school that, you know, that was a total mess. And, and, and I think more, and more to the point, I think, you know, my, my MFA thesis was a novel that, you know, I, I, I thought was good or at least decent, you know, and, and that ended up not quite working out, you know? Um, and, and it, and it's, it's still decent, you know, but, um, but I spent a long, I spent years working on that and shaping it and changing it and, re, you know, um, and that's, that was more autobiographical. That was more, more musical, you know, it's, it's basically the, the unauthorized, uh, Foam, it's the faux memoir of, of a heavy metal sound man, you know, <laughs> so the rise and fall of the heavy metal band. And uh, it's it's kind of cool, but, you know, it's been a long time working on that and not having it work out. And then the story collection, my God, the story collection um, was done, and I started entering it in some contests. And, the fir- you know, the first time you're a finalist in a contest, it's really awesome. And then, like, the 19th time you're a finalist, it's not as awesome. <laughs> and that that freaking manuscript was a finalist everywhere you know it was a finalist at the Flannery O'Connor the finalist at the Saraband contest it was a finalist uh, and then the next year the runner-up at the Prairie Screener Book Prize it was a finalist it's, you know you name it it was but which was which on the one hand is really exciting on the other hand that means it's year after year you know several years of, of it just coming close but not winning and and um and so that that was, and and then you start to wonder how much do I do I reshape this book based on it not winning, or is it just you know, it didn't win, so I should leave it alone. And so then you start really second guessing your own work at that point, you know. And I definitely started changing stories I thought were done and probably making them a little worse, and then reshaping them, and, and you know, and I, you just don't have this kind of sounding board at that point to know what to do. And so okay, so what did you do? <laughs> What I did was um, eventually I got a little lucky because what happened was one of the stories in the collection ended up in um, getting taken by this uh, anthology, the Surreal South anthology, um, which is put out by Press 53. And then the editor asked, uh, talking to him about, you know, do you have a collection together? And I didn't say, oh, my gosh, everyone's, you know, it's, it's been around for years. But, but I did. And, and he ended up taking it. So it got it got taken sort of the non-contest route. Um, and I was really glad that it did, but, um, but the stories themselves, um, you know, by the time it got taken, um, I had to really put it, put it away for a little while and then take it out again and read through it a little more critically and decide, is this exactly the version of each story I want? Um, and it, and it eventually it came together, but even the individual stories, you know, sometimes they go around a long time. I mean, I've, I've had stories taken at, at journals after being rejected a lot of times, you know? Um, but that's just, you know, that's just, so, so is everybody, right? So is every writer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a common, it, it, it's like, it has to happen. You know, some form of it has to happen. I don't know any writer, uh, who's worth the salt who hasn't gone through something like that. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. My wife and I had this thing that we created called the rejection jar. We did this in Missouri where we got a mason jar. You write rejection jar on it. I, I recommend everyone do this. Every time you get rejected, you put a dollar in the jar. And that way, over time, you know, if, if your story or poem doesn't get taken, you just pour more dollars in the jar, and eventually you can take yourself out to dinner. That's right. Or buy a <laughs> handle of Jack Daniels, either one. Yeah, or eventually buy a car. <laughs> right. but, uh, so what, uh, what about, I want to ask quickly about uh, your revision process, and then also I want to talk to you a little bit about what's next. But um, yeah. I'm, I'm selfishly asking this question because I'm getting you know, through the end stages of a, a new novel, and I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not done-done, but it's, you know, I'm close <laughs> to having a big manuscript. Yeah. Which feels like, you know, monumental to me because I've been. Started. That's awesome. How, yeah. how long have you been working on it? A couple of years. So yeah. it's a good, you know, it's a good place to be in, but it's also not, you know, to the point where I feel like I have total control of it yet. And yes. I'm interested to hear you talk about like when you, when you were working on the three day affair, you get mm-hmm. the manuscript to a similar juncture. Like how do you discipline yourself? Because I kind of feel like you sort of need to, because there's the mental impulse or the, or more, more, uh, accurately put is it's more of an emotional impulse where you, you want to get it done. You know, you want to yes. race, but you, you, you can't race. You sort of need to have the discipline to set the thing, the thing aside and let it cool a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. so that you can come to it with fresh eyes. Like how do you approach the end stages of a manuscript to get it to where you feel like it's submittable? Um, I guess I have a couple answers to that. And first, and, and one answer is that I really don't sometimes know when something is, a draft is even done. Okay. And so for instance, when I was writing the three day affair at some point when it was pretty far along in a draft, I got myself a bottle of champagne and I stuck it in the fridge. Cause you know, we've all seen those movies where there's, a, you know, there's those moments where someone is working on a typewriter and they take to the end and then they crack open the champagne. Yeah. And I wanted my freaking champagne moment. And, but you know how it is you're writing and then you realize something you're working on the end and you realize the beginning's got to change. So you fix that. And then you realize something in the middle happened. You got to rewrite that. And before you know it, you're revising, you're onto a new draft and you don't even know it. And so months went by and the champagne never got opened. And eventually we're like, well, this is stupid. Let's just open the champagne. But I never really knew when the draft was finished. Right. But as far as, um, as far as revising it, I cheat. I have a writer wife, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. at some point. So in a way I'm writing it, so that I'm imagining giving it to her and, 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 uh, she's my mini workshop, right? Like I want to give it to her at a point where I, all the obvious stuff I've already found. And so, you know, and so when I think it's ready for her to look at, I give it to her and then she gives it back and I realize, whoops, like I said, I wasn't done. And then I work on it some more. And I think I have, a, you know, at this point I have two, like about three readers who are really my readers. And so, I'll go to one and then I'll make the changes and then I'll rethink it. And then I'll go to the next one. And once I've gone through those three readers, I feel like it's at least as done as I can make it. Yeah, no, that's what you got to have. And you know, here's, here's a related question. When you're getting that initial feedback, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I think is a it's a delicate process, you know, making mm-hmm. how you ingest it, how it's given. Do you care if it's given to you verbally or do you prefer it written or vice versa? Um, I don't think it really matters. I, 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 I actually kind of like the verbal thing because I can ask questions or follow up or not, you know, not have to, you know, look at a sentence and second guess what it means or, you know, think, oh, is this what they really meant? Or are they just being nice or, right. you know, and I think, I think at this point, you know, being this far out of workshop and things like that, you know, for people who read my stuff now, I can 
we, we know how we work, you know, so right. I can ask them whatever I want and you know, they'll be blunt or whatever. So, um, well, yeah, just yeah. The, only, the only thing about the verbalizing is that sometimes like it's actually, it's a skill to be able to talk about this stuff clearly. And so it can, it, is. it can get muddled sometimes when people are giving you verbal feedback or you can, I always fear that I'm going to forget something important, but I guess <laughs> if it's really that important, you won't forget it, you know? Yeah. So yeah. what is, uh, what's up with the, you know, the, the next project? Are you on to something new? Yeah. Well, this, what I really wanted to do was start the fall semester with something already started rather than being casting around for it, you know, with classes going on and everything. So, um, this, it was a great summer. We spent the summer in Rehoboth beach, uh, Delaware, and it was wonderful. And, you know, one of us would work in a coffee shop in the morning and then we'd meet up for lunch and then we'd do the, the baby swap. <laughs> you know, right. I, the other one would take him and then the other person would work in the coffee shop. And, and, um, so, so I, I am, you know, at least a ch- some chunk of pages into the first draft of a new long thing. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't even know exactly what it is yet, but I do know that there, there is some sort of a crime at the heart of it. Cause you know, is it a crime novel or not? I don't know. Uh, my, my editor, um, Otto Penzler is somebody who his definition of crime is pretty loose. So, you know, if there's a crime somewhere at the heart of the story, it's a crime story, you know? So, so according to that definition, I think it's going to be a crime novel, but I, I don't, I don't know exactly yet. All right. Well, uh, I wish you luck on it, and I, I thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with me. I feel like we got everything uh, out there. Is there anything else yeah, you want to say? Yeah, uh, this was great. And Brad, thank you. This was really, really fun. I, I enjoyed it very much. Okay, guys, there you go. That's the show. That is Michael Cardos. Go get his novel. It is called The Three-Day Affair. It's a terrific book. It's available now from the good people at Mysterious Press. You can find Michael online at michaelcardos.wordpress.com. You can find him on the Twitter at Michael underscore Cardos, and he's on the Facebook as well. And uh, I feel like I should add as a kind of coda to the conversation, uh, Michael was talking to me from a phone booth on campus down there in Mississippi or a, a small phone closet of sorts. And uh, he sent me an email about two hours after we finished, and he told me that he got locked inside of the phone booth. Like everyone in the building had gone home for the day. It was late. And, uh, you know, we finished talking, he hung up the phone, and then he realized that the knob did not work from the inside of this booth. So he wound up having to call campus police, who then came out and extracted him from this booth. And uh, fortunately, he did have his phone. So I figured I should mention that, you know, for the historical record, I figured I should let you know that immediately after this conversation, Michael Cardos found himself trapped in a confined space. Uh, this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy if you would like to read my private thoughts and fantasies. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me to let me know your current status, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, don't forget to get the app, the free Other People app. It is official. It is available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It's free, and it's the best way to listen to this program. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars. For all the great music, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, I believe that's everything. I believe I have delivered the critical information. It's laid out here. Uh, Can you hear it in my voice? I'm trying to push through and get this thing done before I go to bed. I'm still a little bit under the weather, but I have decided in an executive manner that my illness is over. Never mind the fact that some of its symptoms continue, continue to linger. Do you ever do that? Do you ever say to yourself, it's over now? I've had my time being ill. And uh, now it is done. I hereby decree. Like I said this to my wife earlier tonight. I actually said this. I announced in the living room that I was done being sick and acting sick and taking on all of the trappings of a sick person. 
And uh, just as I said this, I started coughing, and my wife looked at me like I was crazy. Please remember that Theodore Roosevelt referred to Tolstoy as, quote, a social and moral pervert, end quote. And uh, he also referred to Thomas Paine as, quote, a filthy little atheist, end quote. Uh, I think that's it for now. Thank you once again for listening. I appreciate it greatly. I appreciate it a great deal. I think that's better phrasing. I will be back again soon with another episode uh, every Sunday and Wednesday. That is the schedule, ladies and gentlemen, in case you were not aware. Uh, You can subscribe for free at iTunes or at Stitcher. You can get that free app. You can listen online. It's free. It's fun. It's enjoyable. And enjoyable, of course, means essentially the same thing as fun.